Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin podcast. My name's Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and that other guy, mm-hmm. Todd yeah. Pruitt, yeah. Todd Pruitt, who's a pastor in some some denomination in the in the in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Out, out in the rural Not south really. in Virginia. Yeah. Presbyterian Church in America is, I believe, the name of the mm-hmm. sect that you belong to. Exactly, and, uh, based in in Virginia, <laughs> and we're very privileged today. We, we, we're doing a first today. We have never had anybody from this institution on the podcast, mm-hmm. a bit of an oversight on yep. our part, because I have a number of friends uh, who are on or have served on faculty at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in South Carolina. And today we're interviewing their professor of biblical studies, Michael Morales, who has written uh, a new book entitled, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. My guess is that for anybody who does one of those read through the Bible in a year <laughs> courses, the McShane Bible reading thing or something like that, uh, you know, when they reach Leviticus, the, you know, the heart falls a bit. You know, you know you've got, you got a month or six weeks of some pretty hard grind mm-hmm. dealing with all kinds of rather distasteful subjects <laughs> that seem to have little or no relevance to how I live my life in mm. North America in the uh, 21st century. You've written a whole book on this, and in good Greg Beale fashion, I think your book is considerably longer than the, the original book of Leviticus. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us why did you choose to write That's a good. book on what might be the most boring book in the Bible? And secondly, uh, why is it not the most boring book in the Bible? Well, let me first say, as soon as I got my first copy in the mail, literally the first thing I did was run to my shelf and compare it to Beale's volume. <laughs> and I will assure you that mine is a little bit trimmer than his by maybe, I don't know, 300 pages. So, <laughs> Yeah, Leviticus, uh, in God's providence, I did a dissertation under Gordon Wenham that was actually on Genesis and Exodus And originally it was looking at the birth narrative of Moses and somehow in God's providence, I went from Exodus 2 to Leviticus. um, I was tracing out a parallel that I found very interesting between Moses and Israel. You know, Israel was brought through the waters to Mount Sinai where they worship God. And as I'm looking at Moses' birth narrative, I see that that same pattern. And it turned out that I just ditched uh, the original dissertation topic and developed that that pattern under Gordon Wenham. And uh, so my dissertation basically uh, worked through Genesis, Exodus, and just left me at the threshold of Leviticus, but really helped me to already begin to understand the way the, the book uh, worked. And so um, after publishing the dissertation, that was uh, my great delight and burden to um, tackle Leviticus. Remind me your, the second part of your question. 
Why is Leviticus not the most boring book in the Bible? <laughs> if you believe it isn't. Right. Um, I think once you understand the theology of it and some of the, the tension and even drama uh, that's going on, then you realize how magnificent it is. So mm-hmm. uh, just to put it very basically, I, I think that it is a, a gospel book. So the end of Exodus, Exodus 40 you know, God's house has been established on earth. It's filled with his glory. But there's this cliffhanger. Moses cannot approach the house of God. And it gives us this fundamental question. How can any human being approach God? And uh, Leviticus 9, we find Moses and Aaron first entering the house of God, referred to as a tent of meeting there. And uh, what I discovered, it wasn't just my own work. I really, uh, there's a lot of good work being done that I was able to uh, utilize and stand on. But if you look at the laws in between Exodus 40 and, and Leviticus 9, you see that it's answering that very question. How can I approach God? And the answer is sacrifices and an ordained priest, a divinely ordained priest, offer that sacrifice. So chapters 1 through 7, you have all the sacrificial legislation. Then chapter 8, Aaron and his uh, sons get ordained, and um, that's the equation for Israel's ability to approach God. And from there, it it continues, question and answer. And it's just a matter of uh, really seeing what's going on before you kind of get lost um, in the thick of it uh, that I think really brings out just something of uh, the beauty and the drama and even the, the, the relevance of the book. Yeah, you you uphold Leviticus as actually the heart of the Pentateuch, and um, one thing that I really am gleaning out of this book that I love is is, and I'm going to ask you this question: is how does our understanding of Leviticus shape the way that we read the other four books then in the Pentateuch, and especially Genesis? Um, you know, and and why we need to read with cultic glasses. Yes. Um, I guess the first thing I want to do is is step back. Um, I still agree and believe Leviticus is the heart of it. Um, But I'm working, obviously, in this book on uh, Leviticus. And so I'm sort of teasing out of Genesis, Exodus, everything that will feed into uh, Leviticus. But I wouldn't want to do that in a reductionist manner. There's Mm -hmm. so many things going on, especially in Genesis 1 through 3. Mm -hmm. But... um, Yes, so we get the creation account in Genesis 1, and if you really read it as if for the first time, um, you get the impression, and others have written on this, that God is a workman. He labors six days, he's building a house, and he's resting on the seventh day uh, when he enters that house. And being that it's God, this is not just any house, but it's a temple. And so already we're getting theology that's going to help us understand uh, the tabernacle and the cultic rituals uh, to come, uh, the, the role of the Sabbath. And so it turns out that um, when the tabernacle is constructed, uh, there's a lot of language that is alluding to the Genesis creation account. Um, uh, Exodus 39 and 40, I think I give a chart of this in the book. Uh, you have the construction of the house of God, that the blessing upon it and everything described uh, in the same way as God creating uh, the world. And once you get that analogy between God's uh, miniature house, the, the temple, and God's macro house, uh, or the macro temple, the cosmos, uh, which was, by the way, common in the ancient Near East and, and these various other religions, it was uh, just a common 
place understanding of the function of a temple. Then suddenly you see what the beauty is of, of what's going on. And so as I explained, for example, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Day of Atonement takes place on the model of the cosmos, but it's a, a promise uh, of what God is going to do in the great house of God, the, the macro temple on the earth. So we're looking for a day of atonement that's not accomplished by a Levite and everything the author of Hebrews says. Uh, but also then uh, Exodus is leading up to that, of course, with the worship at Mount Sinai that gets taken over by the tabernacle as something as affordable, Mount Sinai. And, and so, uh, as you know, I have a few chapters where I'm trying to show how from Genesis through Exodus we're getting the lead in Mm-hmm. Those uh, are fascinating chapters. Leviticus. So I'm um, now, as I mentioned uh, uh, off the air, I've been working on a, a commentary on numbers. And um, what's been fascinating to me, so in God's providence, as I said, my dissertation was Genesis, Exodus, then I uh, get a contract for a book on Leviticus, and now I'm in numbers. So <laughs> I'm assuming I'm going to get an email for Deuteronomy sometime soon. <laughs> the second most boring book in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> numbers. Yeah. That's how I get the contracts. Uh, no one else wants to do it. Well, it's not a boring book. I mean, this book is no, so fascinating. No. I I want to, I'm not even, I'm about 200 pages in, I'm reading it slowly. And I was telling the guys, like, I'm already wanting to go back to the beginning mm-hmm. and, and, you know, get a second gleaning out of it again, mm-hmm. because there's just so many different areas that well, have opened my eyes. Yeah. To the way I read scripture. Uh, I, let me just add this, um, uh, this book is is a part of a series that a lot of our our folks um, will will recognize. Certainly, the pastors in our audience will recognize. It's part of the New Studies in Biblical Theology, published by IVP. It's an excellent series. I've got about I think twenty of the volumes, and I, I tell you, this is probably my favorite um, out out of that series so far. Uh, Amy and I were talking some weeks ago, and we both mentioned in passing that we were both reading this book, and we said, "Man, we got to get." Uh, Michael Morales on here to talk about this book. And and I'll just tell you, if you're a pastor, you read this book and you're going to want to stop what you're preaching and start preaching through Leviticus. I would imagine so. Yeah, it, it really is uh, uh, c- compelling in in that way. So one of the things that, that uh, caught my, my attention early on um, in the book was for those who, who have taught or, or, or have, have, have done any reading on the book of Leviticus, one of the things we hear is, you know, the theme is holiness, the theme is holiness, the theme is holiness. And while you certainly uphold holiness as central to the character of the book of Leviticus, you go you go a little bit further and say, well, technically, the theme is not holiness in and of itself. It right. is. And, the, and then how do you describe uh, the theme of Leviticus, Michael? I think as the center of the Pentateuch, uh, I think the theme of the Pentateuch is Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to right. dwell in his presence. And the way that that happens is through Leviticus. And so... Specifically, the second half, which is usually, uh, you know, source critical scholars mm-hmm. um, relate that to the uh, the H source, the holiness source. Certainly, uh, the term holy is found spread throughout. Uh, I just tried to point out that holiness, in a sense, um, is a means to an end. Um, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Without holiness, no man shall see God. And so... Uh, God does give his people a program of sanctification, uh, but we, we always want that end in view. And I think this is what biblical theology adds, uh, is it gives us the context, uh, the goal uh, for a lot of what we're doing. You know, I want to pursue holiness because I want to pursue knowing Christ uh, more deeply. Mm-hmm. So if you, know, you think about you know, a soldier who's 
uh, in the midst of a war, hasn't seen his wife forever, and he's told these things need to happen for you to reunite with your wife, he's, he's going to pursue those right. things. And I think that's the context for holiness. It's always because this is who God is, and we must uh, become like him. And so, you know, I often, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the book or not, but it's a good question to think about that I like to bring up in the classroom is when you're thinking about that period, uh, you have the tabernacle in the wilderness with the Israelites, and God has to hide, as it were, behind two veils. What would it take for God to be able to set aside that veil, walk into the holy place, set aside the other veil, walk through the entry to the tent of meeting, and go out and have fellowship with God? What would it take? We know that God can't change, and so the only solution is that we need to change. Mm -hmm. And and this is really the wondrous redemption of Christ, is that He can so sanctify us that the veils can be removed, and we can have face-to-face fellowship and communion with with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Um, And it's just a wondrous Mm -hmm. salvation, which is, of course, a lot more than just the forgiveness of sins. Um, And that's something that I find usually the sacrifices get related to. It's just uh, expiation. It's it's all negative. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas what I learned and what I just love about the book of Leviticus and even the sacrifices like the whole burnt offering, that it's a lot more than negation. It's this constant spurring onward to pursue holiness within the context of pursuing uh, Israel's relationship with the Lord God. Mm -hmm. Well, not a technical question, Michael, but a sort of practical question. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at, uh, I've got Leviticus pulled up on my Logos Bible software, and I don't preach every week anymore. Uh, I'm not a a full-time pastor in the way that Todd is, but I'm thinking, okay, uh, I, I'm persuaded by you that, that Leviticus is a, is a great book, a lot of richness there. How would you suggest that I go about preaching it? Is it a book to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter? Or should one uh, look for themes and perhaps... Pre- I, I remember a few years ago when I was at Westminster Seminary, uh, Kevin DeYoung came and did the preaching conference. And uh, one of his talks was on preaching Leviticus. And he did a I uh, seem to remember a, a great sermon on, I think, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. And I remember coming away thinking, well, that was a great sermon on Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, but how are you going to preach on Leviticus 15, Leviticus 14? Uh, how would you go about uh, a sort of a homiletic preaching strategy relative to Leviticus? Yeah, that's a good question. Of course, different people have different approaches that would be legitimate. I, I would take Leviticus and I would go chunk by chunk, not um, certainly not verse by verse in the sense of limiting a sermon to one verse. You know, Leviticus opens with the whole burnt offering legislation. I would preach on the whole burnt offering and then it moves on to the tribute offering. I would preach on that and, um, and the peace offering. And I preach on that. And then it gives you your expiatory uh, proper sacrifices, the sin offering and the, the guilt offering. And I think each of those could, easily stand its own sermon and uh, but at the same time what's what's good about having some of the themes in mind is that you don't get lost in the minutiae but you are you know that the goal then is uh, being able to approach God's presence in worship so Leviticus 9 is sort of your target and uh, you find different ways to hold that out before the people but 
even though there's a lot of kooky typology out there in different books on the tabernacle and, you know, what this branch of the lampstand, you know, signifies, things like that. With the sacrifices, we're on pretty sure ground, and you can robustly preach uh, Christ, I think, fairly mm-hmm. easily. Yes, once you get into Leviticus 11 through 15, um, the laws of purity and impurity are, are clean and unclean. I think each of those chapters could stand a sermon, but I think it's also would be legitimate to take that section as a whole and just explain. Uh, that's what I do when I'm teaching on the Pentateuch is, you know, what's the basis of these clean laws? And it's basically life versus death. God is absolute life. We are, you know, uh, like with Princess Bride, we're, we're mostly dead, even while we're alive. Uh, it's, you know, we think we're, the spectrum is of life until you die, but really in the Hebrew way of thinking, there's a spectrum of death. God is absolute life, but we're in the kingdom of death, whether, and when we're sick, uh, we're further in. And this is the idea. You can't be stained with death and approach absolute life because life will always obliterate death. I mean, it's a very positive theology. Um, So explaining the different bases and why this animal, and why not? Well, these birds uh, are, you know, eukaryon, so they're related to death versus the dove and things like that. And it's helpful just to bring up, I think, those categories and then um, transition, uh, maybe the book of Acts, to uh, Peter and his different, you know, visions of eating mm-hmm. the unclean animals. And so there's rich there's rich theology, even from those uh, purity laws. Uh, Paul, uh, so many of his letters are dealing with this, with Jews who they just can't break out of the habit. And so it ultimately, again, points us to the accomplishment of Christ and our redemption uh, that means we don't need to follow some of these laws anymore. Uh, and so I, I think, just like I would do Genesis, story by story, not, not necessarily verse by verse, I think with Leviticus, um, I would uh, do it in chunks. Um, as I read your book, one of the things that just kept coming back as, as someone who preaches every week is just, again, you know, the confirmation that uh, as Christians, we are a, a, a two Testament people. We don't just focus on the new Testament, but we love and value and uphold uh, the first Testament as well for good reason, because we see it as, as, as a Christian library of books, just as much as, as the new Testament is. And I guess this is along the lines of similar to, to the question Carl asked you just in terms of, of, uh, practicality. If, if, if someone who is maybe teaching a Sunday school class in their church, and they, they hear this podcast or run across your book and they think, oh, wow, I'd love to teach a class on Leviticus. Or if a pastor says, okay, I'm convinced, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach through Leviticus, uh, what would be the, the, the first commentaries you'd point them to and say, hey, grab this commentary or grab these couple of commentaries and, and these are going to be uh, most helpful for you? I love Wenham's uh, commentary on Leviticus and what would certainly encourage that one. Roy Gain, uh, he's a Seventh-day Adventist who, um, his commentary, it's in the NIV application. It's really solid. And, and he, you know, and he's, a, and he's an Adventist. A Seventh-day I know. Yeah. He, he aims it for the evangelical audience. So, you know, I don't know if I've been word for word, sentence by sentence through right. his commentary, right. but, uh, what I have looked at, it's always been very helpful. Yeah. Um, he and I correspond regularly. He was a student of Jacob Milgram, uh, so he knows uh, Leviticus really well. Uh, Milgram's work, I would recommend, obviously, with, with the caveat that this is sort of a Jewish mainstream scholar. Yeah. Uh, but, but those three, yeah. uh, 
think are, are really helpful. Yeah. Other sort of studies yeah. like sin and graded holiness that I think feed into it, but as far as commentaries, mm-hmm. uh, those are good ones. I just want to switch gears back to first gear, maybe, um, of, of reading creation with, in, within a Levitical context, because um, you talk about how the creation account, you know, isn't only a story of origins, but it informs the worship of ancient Israel. And so I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about how um, it informs us about sacred space and sacred time and sacred status. Yeah, you know, I... When I began my dissertation on Gordon Wenham, I had a chapter on Genesis 1, and I literally spent about a year reading everything uh, that anyone who I could get a hold of their work has written on Genesis 1. And there's something that you just can't convey in two minutes, but in that process of kind of hearing the same thing from different angles, from different people, um, I feel like I was a changed person after that year and could not believe that I was raised in the church. I knew Genesis 1 well, but I'd just never seen some of these things. Mm-hmm. And primarily, I'm, I'm thinking about the role of the Sabbath. Um, you know, you have scholars calling Genesis 1 the liturgy of the Sabbath. And when you get down into the Hebrew text and you just see the way the number seven uh, stands out, I mean, even... Well, I guess you wouldn't get this in the English translation, but the opening sentence is seven words, and then there's seven paragraphs talking about seven days leading to the Sabbath day. And there's other issues where where like keywords are given in multiples of seven. That sounds like weird numerology, but it's Mm -hmm. it's a basic technique, um, specifically in the Pentateuch that we see uh, and in Leviticus a lot. And that's what really hit me is. Yes, we can talk about humanity as the height of creation, and you got a lot more number of words uh, for day six, but the reason you need all of that information about day six is to understand day seven, mm-hmm. that here God has created uh, a creature in his own image and likeness who can lift his face up to heaven and have dialogue with God and enjoy fellowship and communion with God and and. Uh, you wouldn't be able to understand what Sabbath is about unless uh, you understood anthropology well. And so uh, that was a big takeaway for me. Also, the fact that, yes, God sanctified a day and made it holy. And this was a day reserved for worship even before the fall. Um, You know, if you look up the root for holy in Genesis, and other than than the, the place called Kadesh, which has the same root, the Sabbath is the only object that is sacred in the book of Genesis. Yeah. It's time. God sets apart this this time. And so, you know, we have a lot of sloppy thinking. I, I remember when I was teaching at Knox Seminary, and I, I taught a course on worship, and I remember receiving a paper and, and just basically getting what would be our knee-jerk thoughts. Well, God doesn't care about when you worship, just that you worship. And, and it's easy to say all these things when we don't have the, the Old Testament and realize that all of these things matter greatly uh, to God. And so, uh, yes, the Sabbath day um, is, is the center of Genesis 1. Then when you move into the Eden narratives, uh, we see that the Garden of Eden um, is really described to us as the original sanctuary, mm-hmm. and it's sacred space. And when Adam and the woman sinned, they are expelled from that place. Now, we know that God is omnipresent, uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is how God works. And he, his presence of blessing, his intimate presence was uh, restricted to the garden. And it's a way for us, it's catechism for us to see that humanity is 
uh, growing farther and farther away from God uh, through these uh, continuing uh, eastward exiles. Interesting, Michael. I, this is kind of tangentially related, but I'm struck at how Sunday observance, Lord's Day observance, is one of those church practices that has almost completely disappeared mm-hmm. without anybody making an argument for it to disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, the move from two services to one service and the general treatment of the day as pretty much like any other day is remarkable to me. So I'm very interested to hear your comments there on uh, on the, the sacred nature of time. I press this in my history classes, that time is a, a an extremely important marker and reinforcer of identity and and it's interesting that that is confirmed by what you say about the the sabbath in genesis there Mm. yeah you know it's it's a sad reality today and and obviously many elders are going to need to give an account to the lord um but one i think one um effort that can be made is like with anything when we lose the theology we lose the practice and so uh, i think teaching people about holiness and, you know, as trite as that sounds, you know, again, another question that I ask when, I, when I'm teaching on Leviticus is, this, what does it take, fundamentally, what does it take to be sanctified, to become holier? And, you know, there's a lot of answers we can give, obviously related to the personal work of Christ, but what I'm getting at is a very basic thing. And what we need is the presence of God and mm-hmm. time. And uh, that usually hits people you know, out of left field, nothing that we do ourselves makes us holy. It's, it's God's presence. He is, he's the source of life. He's the source of holiness. And so what we need more than anything is time in God's presence. And so don't take this out of context. It's kind of a, a silly analogy, but assuming there weren't um, the tan salons that uh, Carl enjoys going to, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you wanted to get a tan, what are you going to do? You need the sun and you need time in the sun. And, you know, if you see someone come into the room with a tan, you just assume they have spent time in the sun and holiness is very much the same way. And so, you know, whether it's a, a young person in a college setting or someone at church say, you know, I, I want to be holy. What should I do? What book do I need to read? That guy, I say, first and foremost, you need to set aside the Lord's day. Um, if you decide to cuss less and, and, you know, you write all of these, you know, uh, sermon outlines about what I need to work on on your fridge, none of those things will transform you. But what transforms us is the presence of God. And so the best thing that we can do is enter God's presence in corporate worship and enjoy fellowship with God and the people of God. And in one sense, it's liberating. It, it means I don't have to do all of these other programs, but when Lord willing, we can get many of our own elders to realize that model. Then we'll see what a disservice to negate a second service because we're literally taking away half the opportunity for the very people we're serving. And our goal is their holiness and sanctification. We're removing that from them. So, um, yeah, I think uh, the Lord's day and time in the presence of God corporately is um, huge from beginning to end. I mean, this is, this is how the Bible ends. God's people ushered into his presence for all eternity. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm really glad Amy asked that question because for me, when, when I got to chapter two of this book, it was in, so incredibly helpful. And in fact, I would tell anybody out there who is struggling to kind of figure out 
what the Bible really does enjoin us to do in terms of how we relate to to the Lord's Day, to the Sabbath. Read chapter two of this book. It it it, it is one of the most helpful um, apologetics for the continued faithful observance of the Sabbath that 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 I've read. In fact, I would I would tell. Any preacher out there, if you're if you're preaching anywhere in or near the Pentateuch, you need to get this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say if you're preaching any part of the Bible uh, as a Christian preacher, you need to get this book because of the whole theme, which is how are sinful people going to have fellowship with the Holy God? And and this this book, even if you're in the Gospel of Matthew or Philippians or whatever. This book will give you such rich theological and biblical content as the background behind your gospel preaching. It will be very, very helpful. So I think you can hear that we're big fans of of this book and very thankful that uh, Michael Morales uh, wrote it and very thankful, uh, Professor Morales, that you joined us today on Mortification right. of Spin. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, yeah, and to our listeners, uh, please uh, go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, you can enter to win a copy of this wonderful book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord by Michael Morales. And uh, while you're there, you'll see a place to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide content like this. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope to speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I should say I'm a terrible interviewer. And, um, <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> to, to make matters worse, I've been steeped in a numbers commentary, and I feel like what what testament is Leviticus in? So I hope I. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Numbers, man. You're you, yeah, yeah, you're a bold really... man. You write a book on Leviticus. Now you're doing numbers. That's uh, that's pretty good. All of all of the books that we warn people will bore them to death, and that they should avoid. Yeah, that's good. Are you ready to start, Michael? We know you're under a, a sort of time watch. If we wrap it up around about quarter to 12, is that early enough for you, Michael? Yeah, that's perfect. And actually, um, uh, the, the guy I need to take to the airport is Ben Dunson. So his hello to you. Ben, I don't care if he catches his flag. <laughs> <laughs> you tell him he can wait till we finish with you. <laughs> no, give this ben changes my, everything. Ben is the husband of one of my great secretaries, Martha. The girl who shouted at me because I whistled. Oh, you whistled too much. Water yeah, too yeah. Often. Yes. So there you go. Okay.